Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On the show this week, the FT's John Author sits down with Sir Paul Tucker. The economist and former deputy governor of the Bank of England has written a new book on the power of government agencies and the unelected officials leading them, most notably those of central banks. The book is called Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Here's their chat. Paul Tucker, thank you very much for joining us today in New York. Now, this uh, tome you have written, Unelected Power, runs to more than 600 pages. It's one of the most ambitious books I've uh, read in a long time in terms of the prescriptions you're making for uh, independent agencies, for the the state that has come uh, to build itself around uh, modern democracy. I think what would be very interesting uh, to know is how has your career coloured these views? You've lived through some very interesting times at the Bank of England. What prompted you to uh, embark on this very, very, uh, very ambitious task? I started in central banking in 1980. And, um, that lasted until the end of 2013. And really by a series of um, flukes, I was repeatedly involved in the design of regimes of various kinds, policy regimes, not only in the UK. After the stock market crash of 1987, I was involved in redesigning Hong Kong's securities regulatory system. From the late 80s, I was involved on and off in the debate about Bank of England independence. I was Governor Robin Lee Pemberton's private secretary for nearly four years. And during that period, the debate in earnest began about whether the banks should be an independent monetary authority. And that influenced me a lot. Then we got independence in 1997. Courtesy of Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown. for And very early, very early on, I mean, in the first week, days of the Blair-Brown administration, who acted quickly, I think, learning a lesson from the Thatcher administration a decade or more before. But at the same time, banking supervision um, was taken away. I thought that was too absolute. I was one of those in the Bank of England who thought this is going to look as though it works during financial peacetime and probably won't work during financial wartime. Um, it turned out even worse than I had feared. And then after the 2007, 8, 9 crisis, the Bank of England was given a whole load of powers back, plus extra powers. And I guess with one or two others, um, including Matt Hancock, who's in the cabinet now, but who had been my private secretary and was later George Osborne's chief of staff, a new Bank of England was designed. And during that, I was 
closely involved on, on some fronts instrumental in saying no to certain powers. So we were debating the limitations of our powers. There was a group of Bank of England people running from George Blunden, who was a very powerful deputy governor in the 80s, Eddie George, probably the greatest central banker the UK's had, Mervyn King, myself, who, yes, we wanted the Bank of England independent, but we didn't want to be too powerful because we didn't think that the independence would last. And the, the book is about, so what lies behind that? Because this is appealing to our country's values, shared values of democracy, the rule of law and constitutionalism. And the book is an effort to say what's going on when people say such and such an authority shouldn't have that power or it's outrageous that they have that power. Now, how much have you been sparked by the debate? It's not as aggressive a debate in uh, the UK as it is here in the US, but certainly the phrase power grab is used very often of central bankers uh, in my experience. There is a sense that's almost the opposite of what you were just saying, that uh, central bankers have been involved in a bureaucratic power grab, an attempt to widen their powers. And it's obviously not just uh, central bankers of whom that is uh, of whom that is said. So I am influenced by that. I mean, the book is partly an attempt to address people on the right of politics in the United States and on the left of politics in the United States who have deep reservations about what they would call the administrative state, government by people who aren't elected and can't be controlled day to day by the president or by Congress. So I, I think people in the UK and to some extent in continental Europe would be surprised by that debate. But I would say it's coming their way. And you can see this in the challenges to the ECB, in the, to the European Central Bank. I mean, three times going um, via the German Constitutional Court up to the European Court of Justice and with a deal of popular discontent about what they have done. But I'm not sure it's been a power grab. In a sense, I think, and this is one of the two or three underlying themes of the book, that this is partly our elected legislators sitting back, leaving the central bankers with little choice. I don't want to say no choice, um, but to reinvent themselves as the U.S. cavalry. Now, many would say that that makes a deal of sense because any average person in Congress, if they had any sense, didn't want to be the person who decided exactly which banks failed, how much money to spend on bailing out the individual banks as we went through that process there. I don't think many British MPs really wanted to make decisions on Northern Rock or Lloyd's, RBS, etc., all those very uh, exciting and stressful moments from the, the crisis. So I suppose that brings us to this fascinating concept that uh, a politician, somebody who's holding an elected office can transfer his or her powers, but not his or her legitimacy to somebody else. They can delegate. That, in many ways, seems to be the, the, the central nerve that's running through this, uh, that if you're a politician, you can give Eddie George or Tim Geithner or whoever a lot of power, but you can't give them legitimacy. How do you square that circle? How do you feel that you can... Deal with that I don't think you can give them democratic legitimacy. They can earn some of their own legitimacy by how well they do their task. But then what's their task? And 
the key thing going on here is is in our system of government, in representative democracy, the most brilliant thing is that we've separated how we, the public citizens, feel about the government from how we feel about the system of government. So that when the government underperforms or messes things up, as all governments eventually do, and all parts of government eventually do, we, the citizens, respond if we think the alternative is better by voting them out. And that is precisely what you cannot do with my tribe, me as I was, central banks, independent regulators, competition authorities, the judges in a slightly different register, electoral commissions in many countries. And so we need to be very careful about whether we, what we delegate to these bodies insulated from day-to-day politics and how we, how we do it. And I think the a distinct thing in, in my approach is typically when people address that question, what they do is they have a view of how the world should be, and then they say what that entails for the part of government that they're talking about. And what I want to say is, well, actually, there are different strands to our political values. If you think about democracy, there are some people that value participation. And there are some people that value the electoral contest that takes place every four or five years. With the rule of law, there are um, some people will value predictability and clarity and generality. There are others who will place the most emphasis on fair adjudication of individual cases. And I want to say, well, actually, this just piles up the requirements that, that we shouldn't pretend, rather than saying the book is not the constitutionalist right, as I think of them in the libertarian right in this, in this country, the United States, demands such and such. The participatory left demands uh, a different set of things. Which one of those is best? I'm saying these are, these are really significant strands of opinion, not just today, but running deep in our shared democratic culture. And that piles up the requirements of what I call the principles of delegation. Obviously, Alexander Hamilton is uh, a figure who has been much re-examined in the last few years. He's even the hero of a Broadway play. And is there any sense in which you're trying to return to the central debate between Madison and Hamilton, given that we now need a state to do far more than we did before, that our society has become more complicated and that that creates even more complicated questions that didn't arise in the uh, the era of uh, Madison and Hamilton putting together the, the Federalist Papers. Yes, yes is the answer, but kind of, and Jefferson as well, and I would sum them up for your listeners too crudely as Hamilton emphasising a strong central executive that can do things. And going out and, of his and, way to create a treasury with borrowing power. Absolutely, and, so and, and, and uh, a central bank of a kind, the first bank of the United States. Uh, Madison with a focus on separation of powers, avoiding concentration of powers, what one locus of government power being able to challenge and check another, and with Jefferson, the involvement of the people. So yes, it is, it is, and part of the ambition of the book lies in that. But what what has struck me for many years before I wrote the book is if you go back to their generation and indeed the kind of more elevated political thinkers writing around that century or more, John Locke, Hegel in, in 
Germany mill in the middle of the 19th century. They have very little to say about the structure. Well, they talk a lot about the structure of government as it is being debated then. Independent judiciary, should the, how far should the executive be separate from the legislature? But they, ha- they don't address very much what has become so important to the government of all advanced economy democratic states, which is agencies that are at arm's length from politics. And so I think we have to go back to those debates. And in, in some ways, my book is a plea and provocation to political theorists and political scientists to address a gap left by their forebears. Now, but it's a gap that is obviously a far more important gap now than it was in the 1890s when there were only three federal government departments. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what are the principles under which an elected principal, an elected politician, should delegate power to an independent agency? Take us through the principles by which you do this. In terms of whether or not to delegate to an independent agency, and to be clear, what I mean here is an agency that is insulated from the day-to-day politics of both the elected executive and the legislature. And I think it's worth saying that here in the United States, many agencies that are described as independent aren't independent in that sense. So some, a body like the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the Federal Trade Commission, are insulated from the president day to day, but are subject to budget approvals from Congress each year, which makes them very sensitive to changes in sentiment in Congress, whereas that's much less true of the Federal Reserve. And in Europe, it's not true of a number of agencies. The UK has gone from having very few of these independent agencies to having a lot, possibly too many. So what are my criteria? First of all, that there should be reasonably settled public preferences about the goal or purpose of the delegation. So lots of people in this country, the United States, are upset about the direction that environmental policy has taken since President Trump was elected, the policy of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Other people are absolutely delighted by the direction that it has taken. What what I think it is impossible for anyone to argue is that there are clearly settled preferences over the broad direction of policy. I want to suggest that in my old world, I don't think there's a constituency out there for high and volatile inflation. Um, I don't think there's a constituency out there saying, can we have more financial crises? Let's have financial instability. I think there, the public have got settled preferences. They would like what I call the monetary system to be stable. The question is how to go about doing it. So that's the first, and that's that's quite an important criteria, and as, as I hope the example that I've given illustrates. As the second one is that it must be possible to frame an objective for an independent agency that is clear and can be monitored. So this is an objective set by elected politicians. Now, in practice, the UK system of the Westminster parliamentary system has more degrees of freedom about how to do this than the congressional system in the US. But it's really important that what an independent agency is achieving to do 
where the goalposts are, if I can use that metaphor, that it's not choosing its own goalposts. Because then then it will always, you know, nearly always succeed. Hey, guess what? We did a really good job. Um, who designed the goalposts? So we did. That's that's okay if you're under a degree of political control. It's not okay if you can ignore politicians day to day. A third um, criterion is that the warrant in terms of what's meant the justification of the delegation should be that it solves a problem, mitigates a problem of government making promises that will be believed, so of making credible commitments. And that might sound obvious, but but lots of people would say, ah, the point of this delegation is expertise. And that that's not right, because you could have bodies that advise, independent bodies that publish advice to elected people who make the decision. And the, the phrase credible commitments like, does come through like a light motif in the book. You, does, it's something that comes back again and again and again if this is to be a, a legitimate agency with a legitimate task. Yeah, and what's going on, of course, is that here underneath is the polit- elected politicians, their main goal is to be re-elected. Whereas there's a question here, but it kind of we can probably harness unelected people to pursue an objective if they care about their professional and public reputation for delivering the goal that they were set. As an aside, this means that a, that a society that is incapable of bestowing esteem can't harness its its unelected agents in that way. The challenge then becomes, well, lots of areas of government suffer from commitment problems, the ability to make promises that will be trusted. Indeed, that's why people talk about a lack of trust in government, not only now, but kind of for all of our adult life. And so if solving a problem of credible commitment is necessary, it can't be sufficient. And and the, the most obvious reason is that we don't want to give unelected people the power to make big choices on distributional issues or things that we think go to the values of of society. I mean, the whole point about parliaments and representative assemblies is that that's where the big distributional questions should get sorted out by voting through a contest right. after debate. So you can then delegate some of the details below that, but you don't want anybody like Eddie George actually working out the big questions of uh, distributional fairness, even if he might be one of the better individuals to have a crack at doing that. That is not his job unless he gets elected. That's right. Even if these unelected people, even if they're kind of better at everything, that doesn't mean we should give them everything to do. Plato's guardians, we make those decisions about the distribution of the resources of our societies in Parliament, in Congress, so that the people have a say in it so that they can lobby and influence their representatives. I mean, this is this is brilliant. Yes. Now, so once we have got something that passes its test, passes its test, that there is a need, a justifiable need to delegate authority, how, what principles do we use when we're delegating? How to do that? it. How do we design do we do this entity so that it will do what it is supposed to do uses the the autonomy presumably it has to have if you're bothering the delegation in the first place yes yes overstepping absolutely i mean it's going to have some discretion otherwise isn't this isn't some mechanical thing that's being delegated 
the first thing kind of overlaps with what I've just said, which is that the the Congress, the Assembly, should set an objective that can be is clear and can be monitored. Now, there's quite a lot stacked into that because it means, for example, that you can't give one of these independent agencies um, three or four equally ranked objectives. So there are there are there are a number of independent agencies in the UK. I think the Financial Conduct Authority is is one that have three or four equally ranked objectives, actually, each of which is quite vague. And so the really, the really big questions about high policy are made by them. And I was, well, I was, well, the Fed has two equally ranked. I'll come back to that. Okay, I'll, come okay, back, right. I'll come back to the Fed. There's a, there's a subtle, there's <laughs> we'll a, there's, leave that to, we'll leave that till the end, dear, there's, dear there's, listener. Okay, there's, right, yeah. there's, a, there's an important, <laughs> not so subtle thing going on there. Yeah, but okay, I, I, right, I, yes. was re- I was reading in the press the other day some criticisms of the FCA in, in London. And I thought, actually, as I read the article, I thought this has arisen because what they're meant to achieve hasn't been hasn't been specified. Are they meant to prioritize? And now, by the way, I, I could be talking just as much about the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Bureau Protection Bureau in the United States, or the or the SEC. Are they meant to be prioritizing consumer protection, investor protection, or are they meant to be prioritizing the? efficient allocation of resources and the growth of the economy, and the legislation doesn't say. And my response to that is, that's absolutely fine if politicians don't know which they want to prioritize, but in which case they better retain closer control and influence over it, rather than delegating those decisions to someone who wasn't elected. And there there are different ways of retaining control, which I don't go into much in the book. So this is this 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 business of clear objectives and ranked objectives and with guidance on how to make any trade-offs coming from elective politicians. This is sounds innocuous but you could cross out a number I'm, of I'm not sure I can think of all that many agencies that pass in the EU or the UK or the I think the Bank of England US. monetary policy committee would um, right. pass through. And this goes back to your first question. I mean it's not that I believe that because it's what we did um, with the MPC in the UK. We wanted, uh, I think the Labour government did too, but we wanted what are called hierarchical objectives. We had thought about these things during the course of the 1990s. Mervyn King had thought about them, Eddie George had thought about them, and the people below them, people like me. I, I held the pen for the paper we submitted to the incoming Labour government on what the new regime might be. So that's the first. The, the, the second one is, and again, this is going to sound innocuous, but it isn't, is the powers that are delegated to um, an independent agency should be as clear as possible. The powers should not go further than are needed to do the job. Now, let me give you an example. In the financial stability area, there are these things that are called macroprudential powers. I think it's a pretty unfortunate label, actually, looking back. And and the fashionable macroprudential power around the world is that some unelected body will announce that the people can't take out mortgages with a loan-to-value ratio of above X or a, or a loan-to-income ratio of above Y. I've tried to be quite careful in expressing that. So this applies to every individual, irrespective of whether or not they personally, their household or individual, would be capable of servicing and repaying a mortgage 
with a very high loan-to-value ratio because maybe they've got an inheritance um, coming or maybe they own a plot of land that they can sell. And this is an interference with liberal freedoms. This is not proportionate in the language that we have all inherited from the German constitutional court. And nor is it necessary because you could instead say, if the objective is the stability, the resilience of the banking system, do not allow more than X percent of your mortgage portfolio to be accounted for by loans with a loan-to-value ratio of above. Is sorting out a problem when this happens a matter for the legislature to go back and improve its design? And would that still be the case where we are here in the States, where it would probably be challenged in the courts and the Supreme Court would ultimately tend well, to in this, how to do Well, where it? it's challenged in the courts, and you would find this in, in Europe, the proportionality doctrine is a useful one to apply. I think it is a mistake for parliaments, executive governments, to delegate the kind of power I've described to unelected officials. And by mistake, I don't mean terrible things will happen immediately. I think that as these powers are used, they will be corrosive of trust in our system of government in slow motion, because people at home, the citizens, will say, who the hell were they to decide this? And you only need a few genuine cases where it's kind of just not appropriate to apply that policy. To, to get quite a row going. Well, but what the, the unpopularity is, of the EU and the UK being a particularly classic e- example, if it's not, if, if the source of the legitimacy is not clear, yes. any overreach is going to be noticed. That's right. And it's not that, for goodness sake, that I know exactly where all the tripwires are. Of course I don't and, and couldn't. It's that I think it's important that where the public shares a sense of the purpose, hey, let's keep the financial system going so that it doesn't implode, well, let's do it with powers that are the least invasive of their liberties and freedoms or rights, as other people would express it, as we can. So in in a fairly dispassionate way, this is actually quite a a clear move in a more libertarian direction that you're, you're implying here. I think. That part, a more liberal, yes. that part of it is. The earlier stuff yes. that I was talking about doesn't draw on liberal principles at all. I mean, it's more our Republican principles. For British listeners, I should say, by, by Republican, I don't mean whether or not there's a constitutional monarch. I mean the value of public participating in government and politics yeah. through a representative assembly. Part of the heavy lifting in the book is policing the administrative state, overseeing it purely by via judges, is not enough. I mean, the tendency has become to, on both sides of the Atlantic, to, to delegate with vague objectives and then leave it to the judges to adjudicate as to whether there have been abuses of power. And I'm saying you could have legal misuses of power, which which matter a lot, and that it matters that the public are involved via their representatives in what the goals and objectives of delegation are, which sounds innocuous. And I, I think many of your listeners, I hope many of your listeners, will say, of course it should be like that. Well, what I would say to them, it isn't. Right. 
not everywhere, I mean, not in every field, but it isn't like that. And that's a bit surprising. Let's um, move on to the next how. Yes, the next how principle is, as you said, John, the whole point of delegating is to give these independent agencies some discretion. But we should expect them to act consistently over time and across different cases. And we ought not to discover what their underlying policy was in slow motion. We ought not to have to infer it. They ought to announce their broad approach to their role. And I call this publishing operating principles. There's no magic in those words. That too, by the way, would be a bigger change than people think. And I think the debate in the United States about whether the Federal Reserve should follow a rule when it sets monetary policy or should be assessed against a rule, which is a slightly different thing, is I think really a particular manifestation of a desire to see what the underlying operating principles are. I'm doubtful myself that it could be expressed as a mechanical rule. We do know there are people who are are prepared to give it a try. Yes, yes. yes. Well, a non-mechanical rule, at least. The fourth is, again, this will sound obvious, but I think it's quite demanding, is transparency and accountability. Here, I just want to underline the importance of accountability to committees of the legislature, committees of Congress, committees of Parliament or the Assembly. And this can sound as though... It's kind of undermining the independence. So what do I mean by accountability? And it's best summed up, and I'm not going to get the words exactly right. I quote in, towards the end of the book, a parliamentary hearing in London when Mervyn King and I were testifying to the House of Commons Treasury Committee. And what Americans would call the ranking member, the senior um, member of the committee from the Labour Party, George Moody, said to us, what is all this for, these hearings? You you come here and, and we we ask you questions and you give these eloquent answers and then you go away and nothing that we say makes makes any difference whatsoever to what you do. And Mervyn gave the main answer, but I was asked to contribute as, as well. They asked me whether what I thought. And we both said the same thing, which is so long as the sovereign parliaments decided that the power to set interest rates lies with the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee as an independent body, it, it must just do that without fear or favour. But, but with some tr- transparency. About but with, but with transparency so that you can see whether we're trying to do the job that you've set us and whether we're any good at it. Right. But the real thing that's going on here is you're deciding whether or not to sustain this delegation. And in writing this book and a bit before, as I've talked to my peer group around the world of senior, current, and former central bankers, attitudes to public testimony vary enormously. I mean, Bundesbank presidents, um, the Bundesbank staffers would tend to say it's very important not to testify in monetary policy. To do so um, would risk undermining your independence. Our view was, on the contrary, that going to parliament and testifying was what underpinned our testimony. In Congress, there is regular testimony, um, but it, it's not always about the subject as billed. It tends to range everywhere. And so both here and when I talked about the delegating with a clear objective, the targets of my book aren't so much the central bankers and the regulators, or, although certainly I have things to say to them, but the legislators, the people we elect. 
The people that do all the big jobs in, in my conception of how all of this should work are the people we elect. And it was fascinating because a lot of people these days are a lot of probably thinking of accountability in terms of going online, making yourself available to the masses in a fairly direct way. We're not talking about moving to more direct models of democracy. We're talking about elected representatives in representative democracies doing more, being more active and assertive. Well, we need a way of deciding things and of deciding things, we as societies, um, and of deciding things with broad consistency over different areas of public policy and representative democracy gives us that. But it doesn't rule out active participation at all. On the contrary, I mean, what you describe, the kind of online debates are great. And I think when it comes to making regulations, rules and regulations, independent agencies should consult as widely and as thoroughly as they can and get beyond the industries that they're regulating. They shouldn't just be, you know, we're not interested just in independence from government. We're interested in independence from the industries that you regulate. But as a universal prescription, close participation in every government decision is not feasible. Do we no, I haven't seen any suggestions that the public should participate in each interest rate decision that the Federal Reserve takes every six weeks. Right. So, so it can't be a monolithic solution. It's part of the solution for certain kinds of policymaking. We have one more how principle, one fifth how principle. What happens in an emergency? This is the waters go very deep here. I mean, very deep in practice and very deep in principle. So here is the problem as some people, serious people, particularly in the United States, would would cast it, which is really bad things happen um, that threaten the welfare of the people, even the stability of the, of the country. You can't expect Congress to, even when it's on form, to rise to the occasion quickly. It has to be the executive branch that does that. And the executive branch should, if necessary, these people would say, even go beyond the boundaries of their powers. And then and then it is suggested, but of course, it's awkward sometimes for the president to do that. And in the economic sphere, the, the body that is most able to be flexible and nimble and act as the US cavalry is the Federal Reserve. And there, there are books that say that this is both inevitable and fine. And I am saying it is not inevitable and it is not fine that the limits of delegated power need to be clear, but that we have to be open-eyed that things can happen that you haven't in, envisaged. And therefore, what is needed is Congress or the Parliament needs to lay down what procedure will be followed by the executive branch if necessary, to extend the powers of a regulatory agency or a central bank or other kinds of, of agency. And, that, and then I articulate some limits around, around that. Basically, I, I think that it's immensely important that these unelected agencies can't reinvent themselves to fit the needs of the moment. Now, what I've just said now, is... That's it, exactly what many people would say the Feds and a number of others did do 10 years ago, plainly, that, that, that they reinvented themselves to fit the needs of the moment and probably justifiably so, but in creating many 
deep, difficult questions in the process. And, and this isn't just a matter of law. I mean, I also prescribe that where you as an independent agency that could do something that will save the world, which is putting it dramatically, but you'll see why in a moment, and you would, you sincerely believe you'd be within your legal powers, but it's just not something that had ever been remotely contemplated by the politicians or by the public, as, for example, when the ECB rescued the euro area from complete implosion, then you should go and consult the executive branch. So I think that the ECB should have gone to the Council of Ministers, ideally in intergovernmental mode, and effectively said, we could do this, do you want your project to survive? I guess the problem with that is that the European Union is still an incomplete project. It's not totally no, clear exactly where the executive well, that's why I said power in inter- resides. Well, that's right? why I said in intergovernmental mode. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the place where it is decided whether they want their project to persist, this confederation to persist, is um, the prime ministers, the heads of government in intergovernmental mode, not in EU mode. There's kind of a slightly subtle point there. Right. Basically, you could regard this as not just getting cover from Germany. Where the legitimacy comes Yeah, from. not just getting cover from Germany or whatever happened, but getting cover from all of the member states in that. And this might be thought idealistic, but this is what separates me from what I'm going to call the Hamiltonians, the people right. that believe in a strong executive centre. I, I think if you don't do things like that, if you don't have the kind of system I'm describing, I think what happens is people want to kind of trim your powers in. So the next time a crisis occurs, either you stay within those new limits and the crisis is worse, or you go even further beyond the right. new limits. And eventually, eventually, my, my concern is a slow motion concern, is that people um, wake up and say, who the hell is it that are governing us? which is unfortunately what, to some extent, is already happening. Obviously, many people will be particularly interested in central banking. Let's talk, as you've had experience of some emergencies in central banking in your time. I'll mention some American examples, and you can offer some British (laughs) examples that may may well be quite similar. If we're talking about something like the Fed deciding that it's going to bash the heads of banks together and get them to agree to to help out long-term capital management, if we're talking about... Tim Geithner at the New York Fed taking a lead in eventually deciding that $85 billion was going to go towards rescuing AIG, probably the single most contentious uh, act of the uh, attempts to rescue rescue the financial system during the crisis. How should those decisions be handled in a way that's different from the way in which they were handled? Well, thankfully, there is a really big change here since the crisis. And I'm an optimist about what I'm going to say, and not everybody Mm. is. And I was also partly responsible for what I'm going to describe. I mean, whether via the Dodd-Frank Act in the United States or via the Banking Recovery and Resolution Directive in the EU or via some domestic legislation in the UK, most major jurisdictions now have much better statutory um, regimes, legislated regimes, for sorting out a fundamentally bust financial institution right. in a more or less orderly way. I mean, this isn't going to be pretty, but I think I think the world has got to a place where politicians aren't in the position where the only sane thing to do is to rescue this bust firm. And the only question is, who in the 
executive part of government should execute the rescue. And this, for my old tribe, for, for the central bankers, I think this is manna from heaven. I mean, the lender of last resort role, people will know that expression, which stems from the late 18th century as an expression articulated most clearly in the middle of the 19th century, is the idea that central banks should lend plentifully, albeit at a reasonably high cost, to firms that are suffering a liquidity crisis but are fundamentally sound, that they're not, they're not fundamentally finished. But, of course, you have to make judgments about soundness or fundamental unsoundness in the heat of the moment. And there is a suspicion, particularly in the United States, and I don't know whether the suspicion is fair or not, there is a suspicion that the Federal Reserve has erred in the direction of lending to firms rather than letting them go into bankruptcy because bankruptcy would be so disorderly. And they are now relieved of that dilemma. I mean, that is how strongly I... I mean, I... It, I, I you really think that... that so, yes. so if an yes. AIG... If an AIG gets into that kind of trouble again, they're not going to have the, the kind of agonies that uh, Tim Geithner went through as they worked out what to do. There is, there is no need for them to do so. I mean, the last speech I gave while I was in office was in Washington, and I said the U.S. now has the laws and through a kind of slight miracle and accident of banking and financial history... The firms have a structure where these firms could be resolved, bailed in, as it's become known, so that the bondholders take the losses rather than the taxpayers. And, you know, countries may not prepare themselves to do that properly, or they may choose not to do it when it comes to it. But my view has been and remains. But then they'll have some answering to do there because they will not be able to say we had no choice because they will have had a choice. This is getting on to you know, the substance of financial regulation. But the job of my generation of officials in the aftermath of the crisis was to give our successors and politicians a choice. Well, I think they've got a choice. I don't say it'd be pretty, but they, have, they are not in the position of having to rescue or, or the central banks of having to lend. And so what this means is I think the central banks are insulated from some of the horrendous judgments that they had to make in the, in the past. And does this ultimately reduce the moral hazard in the system? There was a very strong sense during the crisis that whoever else was going to take losses, bondholders could not, you know, that they had to be allowed to stay whole because so many people were assuming that they would be maintained they would, they would be kept whole. I mean, does that reduce the moral hazard in the system yes. in general because we have yes. that clarity? Yes, but it makes it vital. And frankly, I would like to see the leaders of the Federal Reserve, the FDIC and SEC and others be much more, uh, Treasury Secretary, be much more active in this, going around the country and their opposite numbers on the other side of the Atlantic, saying, you know, bonds issued by these banks, dealers, insurers, these are risky instruments and price for the risk. And as, I, as some listeners will have probably heard me say in the past, this is about making banking and finance part of capitalism. I mean, this isn't, this is, again, this isn't some deep down, this isn't some techie thing. This is also kind of a manifestation of our values because of our liberal values. Um, we want a market economy. Well, in which case, let's not have a semi-socialized financial system. Have a politically legitimate framework yes. in which markets 
yes. flourish. Yes. I mean, the reason people were so angry is mainly because of the direct effect on them as the economies collapsed. Well, not completely collapsed. We Thank God we helped to avoid that through QE and monetary policy responses. So there mainly, mainly is that. But it was also this sense of, my God, there seem to be different rules for finance than for other parts of the economy where businesses fail. I mean, the U.S. has a marvelous bankruptcy system in Chapter 11. I mean, if I wished Europe could adopt one thing from this country, it would be the Chapter 11 bankruptcy system. And yet somehow you, you haven't been able to make it work for finance. Well, that's now possible. Well, I think that's a very appropriately positive note on which to end a very interesting discussion which has covered some extremely difficult terrain. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure being here. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.